Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? Oh, good. Good. How are you? Doing fine. What's going on up uh, up near neck of the woods? Oh, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just puttering, just just cooking along, trying to get trying to get stuff uh, organized, trying to get trying to get my life in some semblance of order, top to bottom. Yeah, yeah, that's good. How about you? How's uh, how's uh, Texas America USA? Oh, it's good here. It's great yeah. here. It's um, you know, climate and hot, convivial atmosphere. Yeah, it's still hot. It's uh, ninety today. Oh, that's insane, Dan. That's outrageous. Yeah, it's a little little warmer than I like October's to be, but it's going to be cooler later this week. Seattle is down to its preferred sort of 65 degrees with a light breeze coming off the ocean style of weather. And this is where everybody in Seattle kind of prefers to be. Yeah. My mom said to me not very long ago, she said, you know, I am offended by the sun. <laughs> she said, when the sun is shining and it shines on me, particularly when I feel like it's shining at me. Right. I am just, my reaction to it is just that I'm offended. And as she was saying it, I was like, yeah, I have that same, the sun is very frustrating. It's very like, oh my God, you again? Like, God, chill out. Because in Seattle, we all grow up with this like sort of delightful haze like a protective gray enveloping sleeping bag that just makes the sun feel like a like a a distant friend a warming friend but one that is not that's not just like in your face and the sun is such an in your face friend when you're when you're not sheathed from it yeah so 65 degrees everybody can put their sweaters on it's still you know it's sunny but it's not it's not oppressive. You're just like, da, 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 da. The leaves are changing. It's great. It's one why fall is so popular with people. The problem is then it, then it all goes to hell. Yeah. It's cold and wet. cold raining the whole winter. Cold and rainy. Doesn't yeah. it start yeah. raining in like November and not quit until February or March? I mean, that's what we tell the tourists yeah. uh, because we want them to stay away. But, uh, but it, they're, they're, are some years where it rains all of November every day. And that is a little tough to handle. I mean, by your 25th day Ugh. of rain, it's a lot you're like, wow, what's going on? Why do I feel so weird? Uh, but it's just the price you pay. It's the price you pay to live in, uh, to live in paradise. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really like a paradise for sure. Well, what we don't get is 90 degree days in October. Right. If we got one of those, we would feel like we would feel it was a harbinger of end times. You know, I think there's one of my friends said this to me, Chris. Uh, he said this maybe 15 years ago when I was asking him why he was so tolerant of the heat. And that was in Florida, of course, where it's much hotter and much more humid and even when it's cool in florida it's still miserable because it's always humid it's always always just humid all the time humid 
So when it's 90 degrees there, it's 90 degrees and humid and it's just unbearable. Like you take a shower and you get dressed and you, in the process of walking from your front door to your car, you're now drenched in sweat and need a shower again. It's just miserable. And he said, well, I like it because I don't want to, I don't want to feel like I could die just from being outside. And he was referring to the cold weather where he grew up in that, you know, if you were just walk, if you spent enough time outside and it was cold enough, you would die. But that's true. You probably won't die from being outside in ninety degree weather with humidity. I suppose you might get a sunburn, but you you'd won't die. Thirsty. You'd get thirsty, is what would happen. Yeah, very thirsty. You'd die of die of thirst or or of scorpion stings. Right? <laughs> not you, not you, in Florida, but yeah, here I suppose you could get. I have only. I don't want to jinx it. Because I have a problem sort of creating spiders just when I think about them too much. But I haven't, I've only seen like one scorpion in my house so far. That's good. That's a good, that's a, I think you're, you're better than most people in Texas. Yeah. They, they don't seem to be I, more tarantulas here, which we've talked about, I think, than, than scorpions. I don't need to revisit that topic. My mom said that she would always prefer to be cold rather than hot. Too cold rather than too hot. Now, I think that might be unusual among human beings. I think there are a lot of people that would rather be too hot than too cold. See, your mom is is complete polar opposite of mine. My mom, when she came to visit a few months ago, and it was in, I think it was in the 80s, she had brought her little, little fleece, little fleecy jacket thing to wear. And she even had a, she even had a vest a down vest that she put uh-huh. on periodically on, during the trip to the cold coldness of Texas from, from Florida. That's pretty wonderful. Yeah. I, I think that it's, um, <laughs> I think that my mom and I both suffer from what I guess you would call humidity claustrophobia, which is like my great, great, great phobia fear let's just call it a fear is of having my breath restricted. I don't like somebody sitting on my chest. I don't like somebody putting their hand over my mouth. I don't like being in an enclosed space at all. And it's all because I don't like the idea of suffocating. If you could put me in a coffin with plenty of air, I wouldn't mind the enclosed space. The claustrophobia is all about breathing. And my mom is the same. She just does not want anything restricted. I don't like to be in a tight jacket. Hmm. And so. What about like a, like a, a thick layer of blankets in the cold winter, like over you in bed? Oh, I like that. That's okay. I like that. But I always have my feet sticking out. <laughs> is that just because you're too tall for any normal human no, bed? Or? If I pull into a, a hotel and the bed is like hospital cornered or whatever, the first thing I do is rip it all apart. Really? I just want, I want my oh, feet out. I try and keep it like that as long as possible. No, I if, I, if I if I If I can get into a bed with it tucked in, wake up in the morning and still tucked in, that's a win. That's a W in, in, the, in the column. I like to be able to be on my feet and in a crouch in 
as few seconds as possible from for, a de- from speaking a, of the end times from a deep sleep to <laughs> on my feet and in a crouch i like that to be like minimum of uh, of of extra time and so being in a tucked in bed you have to exit the same way you entered like out of the sleeve headed north and i want to be able to come out of there in any direction and it's a little the, the it's a little of the claustrophobia thing but the humidity in places that are that are super humid, it feels breath restricting. And and I think we both always feel like we're struggling for air. Mm. And that is the feeling that we would much rather be um, in the cold, crisp air. Like in a in deep, deep cold you get a feeling of restricted breath because you can't take a deep breath because you would freeze your lungs. And so the reason that parkas have, uh, have those big woolly or big, uh, fur lined hoods is that when you cinch a parka down yeah. all the way so that it's just a tiny little, you're looking out of a tiny little fur lined tube, that <laughs> amount of space is enough to warm the air so that you can breathe. So you're you're exhaling and you're creating a warm tunnel. Interesting. That when you inhale, you get that air. That air warms up just a little bit. That's why you have those those hoods that are that right. kind of extend I didn't out. Know that. Yeah. A warm tunnel. A little warm tunnel to warm, warm up the air enough that tunnel. you don't you don't like because you can if you if the air is really it's forty below zero and you take a big breath you can injure yourself. By fl- by flooding your body with this like hyper cold air, so breath restriction on both ends is no fun. But it feels like it feels in humid, very very humid places that I just can never get enough air in my body, and I don't like it. I don't like it. So the warmth, like the outer warmth, the fact that my skin is warm or my head or that I'm perspiring. That's not the, that's, that's not, that's the, fine. You're fine with sweating. Yeah. If I could have like a nice a- oxygen mask that was giving me cool, like lightly humid air, I'd be able to live in the Southwest or in the South. In the yeah. deep south. Like what, where do you find your set point is for comfort for physical comfort temperature wise? What are you wearing and what is the ambient air? Uh, I wear jeans all year long. I like to have a sweater on and a sweater can be a thin sweater or a thick sweater, but I like an extra layer. And if the temperature is so hot that I can't have an extra layer on that, I'm just in a shirt. I'm fine with that. But if, if I can't have a long sleeve shirt on, if I have to be in a short sleeve shirt, uh, that means that if I get into a car, I'm going to perspire in the seat and I don't, I don't like that very much. I mean, when I like being on the beach, if I can play in the waves, being on the beach is entirely about playing in the waves for me. And that's why I like to go to Hawaii. Because they have nice beaches and nice waves. Right. Otherwise, just being on a beach or laying in the sun next to a swimming pool, those things seem like um, 
I don't understand. That's not for me. I don't, I, 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 don't, I complete for once. I completely, totally agree with you. Just wholeheartedly. I, I think I don't, you know, I spent a lot of time in, by pools and, uh, and beaches when I was a kid growing up in South Florida, a lot, like a, a daily, I was at the beach or pool every day for many years. And I don't know if I just burnt out on it or what, but I just cannot tolerate it anymore at all. I don't, I don't like to go to a pool. I don't even like the, I took my kid to the beach when we visited Florida because he's a kid and he wants to go to the beach. I'm not going to not do it, but me, I would never, I love boating though. Boating, being on the ocean or a lake, love boating. I love kayaking, all of that stuff. I mean, I could, I, my, one of my dreams would be to live on a boat. Now I love boating, but yeah. I don't like, I don't like sitting. People are like, let's go to the beach. And then they're sitting there. They're just sitting there. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're out of your freaking mind. They're soaking up the sun, soaking so, it up. The worst. Just, to, you know, there's lots of other ways to get sun. It doesn't involve sitting and just laying there by a pool. What are you doing? I'm sitting by a pool. What did you do? Oh, for the last five hours, I've been drinking alcohol and sitting by a pool. That's that's half half the people listening to this, maybe more of them, they're like, that's exactly what I want to be doing right now. Never. Never. You couldn't pay me. A thousand dollars a day, I wouldn't sit by a pool. I wouldn't spend two hours a day sitting by a pool for a thousand bucks a day. If you want to pay me a thousand bucks a day to sit by a pool, I guess I'll. Take I won't money. do it. Nope, I won't do it. <laughs> I'd I'd almost pay a thousand to not have to sit by the pool. I mean, I'd bring a ukulele or something, give myself something to do. You'd sweat all over it and ruin it. It'd be well, ruined. I'd get one, I'd get, you know, they have these new ukuleles that are uh, that are clear, <laughs> clear plexiglass or whatever, clear plastic <laughs> ukuleles that actually are pretty good. Yeah, they play pretty well. I've been really thinking about getting one just for this, just to get paid a thousand dollars a day to sit by the pool and play it. Uh, I couldn't do it. I hate it. I I can't take it. It's not, you know, like the sand as people are like, oh, you don't like the sand. The sand's fine. I don't care about that. I just. Right. And now, you know, I could sit in a cabin in the woods by a lake. Yeah. You know, that seems nice. That that's fine. But just by a pool, though, there's people screaming and chlorine and ugh. Well, this is something that's uh, that's that I've been thinking about, I guess, for my whole life. But I've, I've it's it's reoccurred now recently, um, which is that I think for an awful lot of people, uh, they they work throughout their lives with the ambition of one day getting to just sit by a pool, <laughs> chill. Yeah, right, right, like. What their goal is, what their ambition is, is to have nothing to do. Right. Oh, and I, and I love that. I, I, that's a wonderful goal. It, well, it, except for me, uh, this, is, this is, I guess, one of, the, one of the defining characteristics. Like, I have plenty of time to do nothing, and I do do, I do, do plenty of nothing. But I do not have an, a, any ambition to do nothing. My ambition is always to do something and to make myself useful and to be producing something that's going to be good and, and lasting. And so I'm always judging myself based on how much I've accomplished toward that goal. And I always find myself wanting in terms of 
being able just to put up sheer output. Like, I mean, I don't want to be somebody that's just making output. I want it to all be good. And that's the problem because right. I want it to be good. And I also want to make a lot of it. And, and I don't, I often don't do either, but I'm judging myself on that criteria. And I, and I hear stories about like, Oh, well that guy is so lucky he retired at 59 and just gets to sit around and do nothing. Put his fishing pole in the water, right. sit around by a pool. And I'm like, Hmm, that's never, and that's not what I want at all. Yeah. I want to be, I want to be 90 years old and still hopefully doing something that, that helps people. I totally agree. I, I completely agree with you. And I, but, I, but I, I, but I'm, I never am content like that. The curse of that is that I never have that feeling of like, yeah, I did my, I did my thing and I earned my leisure. Like I take an awful lot of leisure, but I never feel like I earned it. Um, I always feel like the leisure is at the expense of getting up and, and making another thing. Right. Um, and I guess I'm lucky in that leisure is not, I, a lot of people work for leisure and leisure is in some ways part of my work or at least how I've designed my life. But no, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not driven enough that I get up every morning at six and go for a run and, and then come home and, and write a hundred pages. I'm not like, I'm not Michael Shabon. I haven't won a Pulitzer prize, mm -hmm. but I do want to do something other than sit by a pool. It's exactly right. I, I guess. I guess if I was getting paid a thousand dollars a day to sit by the pool, I would feel like I was doing something, which is earning a thousand dollars a day. That's three hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars a year, Dan. I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. That's that would a, be miserable. It would be miserable. Wage. Oh no, it would be fantastic. I I would just rather get that money uh, to sit anywhere that's not in a by a pool, unless it's like an pool? in. Okay, could I pick an indoor hotel pool or something? Or does it have hmm. to be in Florida outside in the humidity? Boy, I don't know. It's kind of pushing. What about a pool on a cruise ship? Better. We've talked because I've done a lot of cruises. We've spent a lot of time sitting in the uh, sitting on the deluxe uh, lanai. Right. Uh, that sounds about, nice. Like, well, it's okay, but it's a popular topic of conversation with the uh, with you know between me and Jonathan Colton and his wife uh, Christine, where we sit around and her sister. Where we, uh, Liz, where we sit around and say, what if we were on a year-long cruise? Mm. What if we went around the world on a cruise ship? How would that feel? And then we all sit, because we're very familiar with what it is like to be on a seven-day cruise, we kind of all look off into space and try and picture even a 14-day cruise, let alone a 40-day cruise, let alone a 400-day cruise. And it's just like you feel the creeping dread mm. of being locked into this cycle because even after seven days, you're like, okay, that's good. I'm good. We're good here. You don't think, oh, if only this cruise could last another seven <laughs> days. I mean, maybe other people do. Right. Uh, but I but I tend to think that that 
that the cruise in some ways or a cruise is maybe their one time a year where they get to go be completely without tether, right? That you don't have to get up in the morning and go to work. You can just do whatever you want. You can sit by the pool and drink as you say. But like a year-long cruise where you're just living on a cruise ship, you know everybody by name. You come out of your stateroom and you walk down that same hall and you walk down to that same elevator stairwell and you go up to the deck to sit by the pool and eat uh, frozen yogurt or you go down to the casino or you go aft to the dining room. Like, boy, you'd get really bored. Mm -hmm. And I feel like any kind of sit by the pool situation is going to end up boring you crazy. But you don't drink, do you, Dan? No, not really. Not much anymore. I, I've spent some time enjoying martinis here and there. I, I learned a lot about wine when I did that website corked mm-hmm. uh, and I've enjoyed that. But the last time I, I couldn't even guess when the last drink I had was months, maybe a couple of years. I don't, I don't really get into it anymore. Yeah. Right. I mean, that is an indication to me that you are not going to get the big, the big treat of sitting by the pool all day, which for most people is to drink all day. I tried that. I mean, I've never been like when I have like, when we talked about my, um, like the way I, I would do things like that. Like I might have one drink, maybe, maybe like two, but the idea of spending a whole day consuming alcohol under any circumstances, it just seems completely outside of anything I would ever even think about doing. It doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound interesting to me. One drink has always been plenty for me, maybe two. And I've known, I remember not that long ago, we went on a little family vacation uh, to San Antonio and there's a beautiful resort in San Antonio where they, it's wonderful hotel rooms with wonderful food there. And they have, uh, you know, a big pool thing with a lazy river that goes all around the property. And oh, the lazy river, the lazy river is nice. You put your kids on a tube and you go on a tube and then you just chill out and it takes you all around. You know, th- those kind of things, at least it, if you ha- if you have to be in a pool, if you have to be in a pool, at least you're in motion. You have the the premise, that even though you're just going in basically a big circle, you're still moving, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would go to the pool. We'd go in the morning before it got too hot. We'd be out there. We'd be eating at, you know, 7.30 or 8, in the pool at 9, have it all to ourselves. It'd be fun. And then by the time that we were done with that nonsense people would be starting to roll out and taking all the chairs and everything. And so that by one or two o'clock when it's miserable out hundred degrees baking in the heat, that's when it would be mobbed. And, you know, I, I was like, why, why are people coming out and doing this? Well, that's because they're too, too hung over to get out there any earlier because they're out there drinking all day long, sitting out there drinking. And it was just in mass. You would be in and out of the pool by 9 a.m.? No, we'd be in the pool at 9. We'd be out by lunchtime. In the pool at 9? Wow. 8.39, yeah. It's nice. Astonishing. Astonishing. I mean, well, it's I very mean, nice. we're, As a family, we're up 
I mean, the sleeping in is 6.30 a.m. Wow. Oh. I don't lie. It's that, not by choice. What would that life be like? It's not by choice. Oh, wow. Oh, by 6.30 a.m. Woo. And that's, that's seven days a week. That's not oh. just oh. weekdays. Wow. Yeah, my no. ki- my kids have, we have a um, little nightlight type, little lights that are on timers that are not used to wake them up. It's used to tell them when they're allowed to come out of their rooms because they're always awake and they're, they're, they're awake waiting for the light to turn on so that they can leave their rooms. They'll be allowed to leave their rooms. <laughs> and so if we can get them to stay in bed till six thirty, that's wow. They get a light. Yeah, the, Bing, light turn, the lights on and then they just come tear out of yeah, their room. They're waiting. They're waiting in there. The little thing, little timer goes off. Light comes on. Now, sometimes my son uh, will sleep a little bit longer and that's nice. Uh, there are sometimes, you know, all the, the light will go off at 615 and 620. He's still rolling around, but 630 is there are both up by then, no doubt. But that's how I was, too. I remember when I was a little kid. Uh, my parents would put the TV on the channel that uh, Ultraman and Speed Racer would come on mm-hmm. so that when I woke up at 5.30, I wouldn't have to wake them up to put the TV on. I could just, they taught me, come downstairs, the TV will be ready for you. You just turn go, it go on. Speed Racer, go. Yeah. And then I would be set and I'd wait an hour for them to wake up. Uh, I would just wired that way. But it's not like I'm going to bed you know, at nine or anything like I, I probably should be. I, I still go to bed late. Yeah. But uh, I'm just wired to wake up early and so are they. So, yeah, I mean, even on a vacation, we're still all up at 630. I was I uh, was in bed last night and I looked at the the clock. Mm-hmm. I was in bed reading. I looked at the clock. It was 445 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I've got things to do tomorrow. What am I doing? Right. What am I doing? Right. Uh, I have to be up at 945 in the morning. That's five hours again. That's five not hours. enough. That's, that's not enough. It's the, the best I'm going to do. So here I am. I'm on my second cup of coffee, five hours of sleep under my belt. Mm. And uh, it's just not enough, Dan. It's no. not uh, enough. But I don't. Right. Drink. And so wait, you said four, 445 your 445. time. So that's yeah, 645 445. my time. My family's already, already up. We're in business. We're yeah. already eat. We've probably already had breakfast at that point. This is why I couldn't join the crew team in college. I was always going to sleep right when they got up to go do crew. And I would have, <laughs> I wanted to do crew. I have a build to do crew. Well, sure. My dad did crew. I love the idea of crew, but for some reason they are morning practicers. That's why I couldn't be on the swim team in high school. They, they practiced before school. What an insane Notion, like I struggle to get to school by the last bell mm. and always have. Um, but I'll, but if you, if every day crew practice was at three o'clock in the morning, I would be there uh, because I'd be coming at it from the other end. So I feel in one way, Dan, I feel like I was shortchanged, uh, like my birthright, which was to be on a crew team to be out there just rowing and feeling the feeling the water and the wind but it was just wasn't in the cards for me but not i feel like 
often that not drinking alcohol makes my entire experience of life different from what the what life in the main looks like to to most of my fellows. Mm-hmm. I don't get to unwind, quote unquote, with a drink. I don't get to go out sometimes, now that I'm a middle-aged person, I don't get to go out with my other middle-aged friends sometimes and tie one on. I don't get that experience of bonding with strangers over a common experience of getting shit-faced together. Mm -hmm. But I don't spend an untraceable amount of money on getting drunk or or on booze in Mm -hmm. general. Like, the money that people spend on booze never seems to make it into their into their accounting. Like when they're doing when they're drawing up a budget. Oh right, they they're like, always, wow, I spend this much on rent, this much on my car, this much on that, and food, and I don't know where right. the other eight hundred bucks a month goes. It goes into, into entertainment or something, right? You know, like they never say like this month I'm going to spend eight hundred bucks on booze <laughs> or right, eighteen hundred right. bucks on booze. It's not like a category in their pie chart. It's always under entertainment. (laughs) So I don't spend that money. And now that I don't smoke cigarettes, I don't spend cigarette money. But also I do not have an eye. I do not have any commonality with a lot of the things that people do in order to be able to drink. So much of what people do. It's all surrounding alcohol. Yeah. They go out to the cabin Why do they go out to the cabin? Do they fish? No. Do they boat? No. Do they hunt? No. Do they read and write? Do they get up in the morning and write? No. Why are they out at the cabin? Because they can drink at noon. That's why they go on vacation. So they can start drinking at noon because they're on vacation and that gives them the right to drink at noon. (laughs) And there are so many, 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 many things that we think of as being sort of human culture or human what we all agree that we like to do with one another, that really is just, it's just like a, the, the way that a baked potato is just an excuse to eat sour cream and butter. <laughs> That's your opinion, man. And bacon bits. Uh-huh. Um, vacation and leisure and all of the things that go along with that and sports, like watching sports, mm-hmm. going to sports games, mm-hmm. all of these things are really like masks for getting to drink at noon. And that is gone from me. And I remember when I was a heavy drinker that getting that any excuse to drink at noon was so welcomed, right? It's the 4th of July. We can drink at noon. It's the big football game. We can drink at noon. And then eventually, you know, you don't need an excuse to drink at noon or, or the excuse gets smaller and smaller. Like there are leaves on the ground. It's let's drink at noon. Right. Right. Like we're celebrating fall. Uh huh. We're celebrating. Like I changed all the light bulbs in the house. Good job. You earned it. You earned that, that noon drink. Uh, and that having that not be a part of my life, then so much of vacation culture, so much of like so much of leisure culture just sort of makes no sense to me until I, until I contextualize it. And then when I, when I realize like, Oh, this is just another drinking excuse. I've, I'm kind of liberated from having to 
pretend that I have any interest in it. You know, that's probably hearing you say that. Yeah. Sitting by the pool. Like that makes sense. If it's like we get to sit and drink and it's, it's, it's acceptable to do this. Right. And not only is it acceptable, but like, here comes the person with my drink and they're refilling it. And you know, I don't even have to get up. Yep. I'm just sitting here by the pool and, and that, and it feels like enough of an activity that is socially accepted. Like, what did you do today? Sat by the pool. Oh, killer. Lucky you. You know, it's like, a, it passes the test of it, of an activity. Like I'll see on, like I do a lot of flying and a lot of the planes I get on leave at 9 a.m. And you can see the crowd on the, on the plane up in the section where we get free drinks. You can see them make different decisions. Like some of them set their watch forward to where we're going and it's already to right where we're going. But you can, <laughs> so but it's you can, after lunch, you can drink. Yeah. You can see them each in their own way, make the decision at what point is it okay for me to start getting drinks on the airplane? Because being on an airplane is an excuse to drink primarily because they give you free booze in the front. And the people that fly in the front are oftentimes people that are looking for a reason to drink. Uh, that's, that's a big part of, of being rich. I think people, people like being rich because, because they, they can drink, drink anytime they want. Yeah. Or they they do so many things that have drinking as a component of it. Well, you you're know? right. Like, you're really on to something though, in that it really does seem like people are, out and about looking for an excuse to have a drink. Oh, it's Janine's birthday. We're going to better go out. You know, we're meeting for drinks after work. Or, oh, you got a promotion. We're, we're meeting for drink. Oh, you close that sale. We're meeting for drinks. Oh, you're on vacation. Let's start drinking early. You know, oh, you're on a flight. Better get a Bloody Mary. And there's, there's a sporting game on. We better watch. Mm-hmm. And, and by, by the way, I enjoy sports. I especially enjoy um, baseball, football, and, those are sports. And, and those are sports. And there's a lot of drinking around those sports. And I remember uh, I, I lived in when I was living in this sort of downtown colonial town for those who live in Orlando, the colonial town. Oh, good old colonial town. And uh, which is which is you were when you were there by the lake, that was downtown colonial town was just on the other side of 50. I like it there. And uh, and so. You know, like my friends would always invite me over. Oh, come, you know, come over Sunday and watch the watch the games. So a few times I would come over and, and watch the games. There was no talking. There was nothing fun happening. There was no cheering for a team. There was just sort of silently flipping between the two or three channels that showed the games and just them drinking beer. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, they would say, oh, thanks for inviting us over. I had such a great time. It's so much fun. It's such a good to come over next weekend. I'm like, this is the most boring thing I've ever done. And you wouldn't even leave it on one game. I couldn't even get into the, the tempo of the game. <laughs> but they would drink every time there was a field goal or a touchdown. Yep. Well, and that, I think, is one of the things almost unique in in our common human lives, which is that having a drink is both a universal way of expressing celebration and also a universal way of expressing mournfulness mm-hmm. because all those things that you're saying like, Hey, I got a promotion. Let's get a drink. It's also true that if you're like, I got fired, right. I'm going to go get a drink. Right. And so that, so there are so many rules about 
like when you've basically when you've earned your drink and there's a lot of social consternation of, around people that don't follow those rules. Like having a drink at 9 a.m. is really growled at by most people. Right. I remember going into a through to a convenience store at eight o'clock in the morning or something. I'd been up all night and I was like, you know what? I'm still not done. And I went in and bought a like a 40 ounce of old English because somehow I'd made it all the way through to 8 a.m. And I felt like one more beer, one more 40 ounces of beer. And right. the guy behind the cash register at the convenience store is like, are you serious? <laughs> and I said, yeah, <laughs> don't judge me. I'm like coming off of a, well, you, know, you don't know if I work at night. Right, you don't sure. know if this is my 5 p.m. Who knows? And he was like, he was like, no, there's nobody that has a 40 ounce of beer at 8 a.m. Not even if you've been at work all night. That's just not how things are done. And I was like, well, it goes to show how little you know. But, you know, I was 25 mm-hmm. and, it's, and, and I didn't care that he was that he was looking down his nose at me. But in polite society, certainly, and in the way that most people live, there is that threshold you have to meet in order to feel like you've earned a drink. And no one in the world is going to say, oh, you lost your job today? That's not enough to have earned a drink. Right. Like that more than meets the threshold. And you got a promotion certainly also meets the threshold. Sure. And there's, I think, different feelings, right? If you lost your job, it's like, oh, right. You're going to go have a drink. Don't have too much because, you know, you're in a bummer state. Right. Whereas, you know, like I, I got a new job today. I don't think there's any restriction on how many drinks you can have in that. Right. Or a promotion or a raise. Sure. Like I'm getting married. Like, well, of course you should be just on your lips. <laughs> I remember see, when I, I was, when I was a little kid growing up, whenever we'd have a family dinner, they would always pour out a little, you know, when I was very young, it was Manischewitz and later it was just whatever wine the adults would be drinking. They'd pour it into a little, you know, I guess more like a little port or a sherry kind of a glass, like a, just a oh oh I thought you were saying they were pouring a little bit out for their dead homies no 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 for Elijah no well we always had the cup of Elijah I always loved that tradition you'd open the door there'd be the chair sitting there always creep me out because I'm like wait a minute you just said there are no ghosts ma <laughs> uh, now know, there is one Elijah's, and he's and he's okay is that we're all right with him being here Elijah's lurking he's lurking outside yeah. waiting for the door to open and how, wait a minute how can he be in everybody's house right now. He's just like Santa. But uh, I, they would pour, you know, a little bit of wine for me. And when I was older, it became, you know, like young teen, it became a regular size glass of wine. And so for me, my association or connection with alcohol wasn't some kind of forbidden thing or something that, you you know, you have to do to extreme. It was like, this is part of a good meal. Right. And a different a different wine might go better with a different kind of meal. And like, you know, that wasn't a major topic of conversation in in our family or anything, but it it was never like, it wasn't like alcohol was some kind of forbidden thing that, that I connected in any way with rebellion. And I, 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 I never made that connection. In fact, I remember when I told my mom that I wanted to try beer she said, sure, we, you, we can, you can get some beer. Next time we go to the grocery store, you pick something out and you can try it, you know? Right. And I did. And I was like, okay, like, 
that wasn't a big deal to me. And so by the time that my friends were like sneaking off with a thing of schnapps or something like that was not very appealing to me because it was like, okay, like I've done this. It's not forbidden. It's not even exciting. It's just like, I knew what it was and it wasn't something that if I really wanted to drink at home, I suppose I could have had one. I just never, I never connected whatever other people connect with the having fun part and the maybe the rebellious part and the drinking to excess. And I mean, yes, I've been drunk. I've been, uh, you know, sick uh, multiple times, a handful Yay! of times. But I, you know, when most people are like, oh, I don't, I'm never going to drink again. And then like a week later, Friday night comes around and they're they're doing it again. For me, it was like, I'm never going to drink again. And I never really did to that to that level. You know, uh, it just I'd done it in college. I got drunk a handful of times. It wasn't. It wasn't a good experience, and so I never really gravitated back to it. That's very charming, Dan. Yeah. Um, I think that I have a hard time imagining you desiring to have your your uh, inhibitions lowered. By you I seem- certainly did not need to have them lowered in college. That's for you sure. You seem pretty like comfortable with your level of inhibition where, where it is, right? You're just like, yes, I, this is where I am and this is what I'm going to do. And I don't want to just like, I don't want to suddenly be ungoverned. Uh, Would you say that that was more or less true? I think that's true. Um, I think I had a problem in my younger life up until my twenties of there weren't, you know, like I, I, I I probably spoke my mind too much and too openly and shared my opinions too much oversharing Mm -hmm. and, um, and that kind of thing. And I, I think for a lot of people, alcohol is a way for them to feel more relaxed in a social situation, more comfortable in a social situation. Um, Not so much inhibitions in a sense of like, you know, streaking and jumping in the pool or something like that, but more just they feel perhaps like they can't open up in a social environment or ask a girl out on a date or um, really get comfortable with their friends and feel relaxed unless the alcohol sort of loosens them up and makes them able to to do that. And for me, I thrived in those kinds of situations without anything to, to drink on top of it. I was very comfortable and still am very, very comfortable socially. Um, I don't feel awkward. I'm not concerned very much with what other people, maybe especially my younger years, not enough, not concerned enough with what other people thought. And so those things that I think are a big part of like why people get a drink or have a drink, especially socially, it's to get to feel the level of relaxed uh, comfort that I always felt in those situations. It's very, very easy for me to be uh, social and around other people in that way. And the alcohol, if anything, it, it inhibited my ability to enjoy those kinds of situations. Um, but as far as inhibition at level, yeah, I am comfortable with it. Uh, I think the way that I am now. How, um, how, what do you attribute your social comfort to? 
I don't know because it's always been that way. It's the same thing for me. Like, you know, you, you've performed in front of, I would imagine, ma- massive crowds. Massive. Uh, massive. Are you nervous before you do it? And how do you get over that nervousness when you are going to do it? Yeah, but the I am nervous, but it's not nerves. The nerves aren't really connected to... I mean, I'm just as nervous, and I know this sounds like a dumb thing that somebody would say, but I'm just as nervous, you know, like if I'm standing in the back room of a house and I'm going to come out and perform for four people, right? I'm just as as wound up about it as I am when I'm about to step out in front of 15,000 people, and in a way, like, like, uh, 5,000 people is way easier than five people. Just I told I know easier. exactly what you mean. So I don't stand next to the stage and, and go like, Oh no. Um, because I don't do that because of the, of the people really. I do it because I, I do dread going out there, but it's because I want to do good and I never am a hundred percent confident that I'm going to do good. You know, like I'm not sure if I'm going to bring to the, to the audience what I aspire to bring. I'm all, I always feel like I step off stage and I, and when I, when I step off stage, I always feel good. I always right. feel like I did a good job, but right before I go out there, I'm like, can I deliver? And, and that feeling of like, I'm not sure I can deliver mm. gets harder. It gets worse and worse. The closer I am to walking out on stage. Right. So when I'm in a performing cycle, I, I'm, I always have dread, you know, the, the show last night went well and I felt great. And by the time we made it to bed, I felt like things were going good in life. And then I wake up in the morning and I just have new dread about, can I deliver? And I think when I'm really in a tour cycle, Mm -hmm. I get to a point where, where I feel like, yeah, every day is sort of like the last and, and I'm in a mode now where I'm, where I know kind of how much I'm delivering uh, and usually those are the moments when I start smoking again, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> partly, partly just to cope with the, with the day in and day out of traveling, but also I think to cope with those feelings. It's why so many musicians end up resorting to drugs because the up and down, the daily sort of like, I'm up, I'm down. Right. I did a good job. I did a terrible job. <laughs> right. I'm good. I'm terrible. It just ends up being something that you have to try and you have to try and smooth that out. And one of the ways you smooth it out is that you have that you have drugs and drugs kind of make everything seem I guess even maybe isn't the word, but like it definitely puts a uh, it puts a compressor mm. on life, and it brings the lows 
up a little and it takes the highs down a little and and that's why that's why we end up like resorting to them just to like just to just to put a little limiter on things let's thank our sponsor it's blue apron this october just right now blue apron is celebrating its 5th anniversary they're bringing back its top 20 recipes from throughout the past five years as picked by all of y'all, the Blue Apron community. So your favorite Blue Apron recipes, they're back on the menu, but for a limited time only. This is the first time they've done something like this. They're all about giving people fresh recipes you can explore as you learn how to cook new dish after new dish, which is why, and many people don't realize this, that they don't repeat their recipes within a calendar year. Okay, so this is what makes this limited time thing kind of exciting. You get to try out their all-time customer favorites. You can do this by going to blueapron.com slash roadwork. That's where you go. It supports our show here. And you get to go and learn about these favorites and you get to potentially become a customer. They have partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranches across the U.S. So the seafood that you're going to get, it's sourced sustainably They have the beef and chicken and pork that they use is responsibly raised. The produce is from farms that use regenerative farming. All of this stuff equals the fact that they're doing as much as they can to help the community, to support these kinds of businesses that are forward thinking. And because they send you exactly the amount of food that you need to prepare their meals, you're not wasting anything. Food waste is a major issue. With this, you use everything they send you. You use 100% of it, and it makes these meals, and you eat 100% of it. There's no waste. It's a very cool thing. And it's fun to cook with your friends, cook with your family, get your kids involved. My kids don't like to eat anything. But as soon as I started involving them in making the food, all of a sudden now, guess what? They want to try it. They want to eat it. They're open to trying new things. Finally. And it works out to be less than $10 per person per meal. They've got all these great seasonal recipes. You can customize what you get. It's really, really cool. And they have a special deal. Not only can you go and find out about those uh, favorites, those favorite recipes, but you can get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash roadwork. You will love it as I love it. It's a fun way to, to, to cook and to prepare a meal and you're going to save money and maybe even help out the environment in the process. So go check it out. Blueapron.com slash roadwork. So when you're up there, you're still feeling a little nervous, but then being up there, I would imagine if it's anything like the public speaking stuff that I've done or the live shows that that I've done you're very nervous before you go out there. And once it's finally time for you to go out there, you kind of get that excitement feeling and it replaces the nervousness. And then you get to that feeling where you're just having a good time. And then when it's over, you have that feeling of maybe either, boy, that sucked or that actually went okay. And then you're sort of relieved and, and energized in a different way afterwards. There are there are rare times when I come off stage and say that fucking sucked. Yeah. We played a show one time. We were asked to come to Spain and it was kind of 
it was uh, the height of our success in in Spain, and Spain was one of our one of the places where we were treated really well. And somehow we were asked to headline a music festival that was happening in Barcelona, and like the Friday night headliner was um, Teenage Fan Club, and the Saturday night headliner was us. And it didn't make any sense to me. Teenage Fan Club was a much, much bigger band. There were bigger bands than us all around us. But we were given this honor. And we were, and our show was happening in the Plaza Real, in the heart of Barcelona, mm-hmm. outdoors in this enormous square. And we got out on stage, um, and the monitors were just spraying white noise at me. They made no sense at all. Couldn't hear a thing. Ugh. Couldn't hear my vocals. Couldn't hear the guitar. Couldn't hear the band. And I kept yeah, like yelling at the, at the monitor guy. And he didn't speak English. And he was just throwing white noise at me. And it was exhausting. And it felt awful. The crowd was separated from the stage oh, by yeah. like 25 feet of, of room in the front there. Like we were on one side of a fountain. And they were on the other. So I could I had no experience of them. I didn't get any crowd response. You know, I would say, Hey everybody, thanks for coming. And I was just like, there was a huge crowd there, but it didn't have that immediate feeling of like the crowd is right at my feet. And every time I said something, they cheered. It was like, Hey everybody. And you hear your voice echo out over the plaza and there's a sea of people, but didn't, wasn't really getting the feedback. And when I walked off stage, I was just like, Oh, the worst. I was mm. just in the, I just, I went back to this trailer behind the thing and I sat in this chair and I just stared at the floor. And eventually, you know, I think I was like offending the promoters. Right. Because they were back there like, great show. And they wanted to party and every, the band was, was all had fun and we were all standing around and I was just staring at the floor. And it was like a bummer. But I was, I had gotten so emotionally drained out there that I didn't have, I didn't have the extra energy even to look up at people. It sounds awful, but that's rare. That rarely, rarely, rarely happens. When I step across the threshold of like from backstage to on stage, the anxiety goes completely away and I'm just like in performance mode and I enjoy being out there and I'm having fun and, the closer I get to the end of the show, the more and more fun I'm having because whatever mistakes I was going to make are in they're behind me now. And all I have to do is get to the end right. and, and play the last song. And if I do that well, then, you know, like I'll feel triumphant. But it's interesting, like doing podcasting. I never feel even the remotest feeling of trepidation when I wake up in the morning and I know that I'm going to talk to you or talk to Merlin mm-hmm. it is not only is there no trepidation but also like it's not like there's it's not like there's excitement in the sense of um, oh my god oh my god can't wait to get to the podcast <laughs> It's like a completely natural feeling. Like I never think I never have that dread of, uh, obligation 
year, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which most of the things in my life, if I put a doctor's appointment on my calendar, I'm like, oh God, I got to go to the doctor's appointment. Like I just, I have dread about it. Right. I have dread about almost any obligation. Oh, there's a birthday party. God, I got to go do that. Oh, I'm going into the studio later. I got to do that. No, oh, I know exactly that. what you mean. I feel that all the time. Like I had yeah. some, you know, parent teacher conference for my like kid this morning. And I was just like, oh, got to do this thing. Do this thing. I'm like, well, it's at 930. It's not like that's early. And I'm not, it's not like I'm not going to be already up and about in the day anyway. But like, oh, this thing, I got to do this thing. Yeah, it's not any fun to do to have to do things but podcasting feels so natural to me like i'm just waking up and i'm talking to buddies and i like talking and i like having no you know none of these things none of these shows that i do have any um like there's no there's no plan so there's no difficulty it's just a it's just fully fully natural i could do i feel like i could do uh 50 podcasts and never ever feel the burden of of it being work and i don't understand and you know and maybe that's the you know they always say the secret is to have your work not feel like work and I guess the guys that work down at the propane distribution center, <laughs> right. like the ones that are really good at it, feel like it isn't work. And primarily, I bet that's because they get to meet and talk to a lot of people that they like in the course of the day. Right. They stand behind the counter and every time somebody comes in the in through the door and they hear the like bing bong. Right. They have that Will Rogers feeling of like, I never met a. I never met somebody that wasn't my friend. You know, they're just ready to meet people all day. And so podcasting doesn't feel like work. And the idea that, 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 uh, even in the, even in the small way that it does, that I would earn any money from it continues to feel a little bit amazing. Like, yeah, really, this isn't an, this isn't onerous to me, but I know that this would be really hard work for a lot of people people come all the time and they're like, well, what do you, how do you even do a podcast? It's like, that is not a question I ever had to ask. How do you do it? But like I was looking the other day, I thought about renting a little podcast studio while, while my house was getting worked on. Sure. And you know, they're very expensive. Yeah. And there was this, I was reading down this list. There's a, uh, there's a place in Seattle called the cloud room that has built a whole suite of podcast studios. And they have this thing like, well, for $2,000, we will help you record and produce some number of episodes of a podcast. For $5,000, we will help you record and produce the wrong business here. X number of shows. And I was just thinking, like, who is that for? Like, who is that? Who is going in there and they're thinking like, well, this is going to cost me 300 bucks. But at the end of the day, I'm going to have a tight little one hour show or a tight little 40 minute show. 
like that's the that's that whole side of of like what I guess is the explosion of podcasting. Yeah. That I go, I don't know what that is. And then I was talking to somebody and they said, yeah, you know, that's the, it's like, what's new at the, what's new at the, at the local boutique hotel, tune in to our podcast. Like it's just podcasts that are, that are part of a larger enterprise, I think, where maybe they get 50 listens or something. It's the people that are like, I'm going to listen to a podcast about what's new at this hotel. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, takes the shit out of me. <laughs> I know. I think a lot of people want to do a podcast. They just don't know exactly what it isn't in their, it isn't their instinct. Maybe. Sure. But you would think that getting up with a guitar and stuff would be easy for me. And it's, it continues to not be. I know a lot of people who, you know, with their guitar, in hand you can't keep them off the stage like they would happily get up with anybody at any time and be up there uh with no dread but i think most of them are are not singers i think they're mostly instrument masters and they're good enough at their thing that they've they're never going to get caught with their pants down they're always going to know what to do next right and uh, and with singers, I think it's the rare singer that doesn't that doesn't have a little bit of feeling like, well, I hope I don't fuck this up. 